Welcome, ladies, gentlemen, and grandparents lost on the internet. I am your host, Brendan Gibson, with my co-host, Ian Garner. Greetings. And welcome to Nerdgate. This is the podcast where we pop the top off of various nerdy games, books, and movies, and comics, giving you a taste of what being a nerd looks like. This week's episode, we are discussing the board game Betrayal at House on the Hill. To kick off the episode, Ian's going to give us our nerdy word of the week. Yeah, so this week I decided to talk about a little bit of gamer lingo. It's turtling. Turtling is the idea of playing a very defensive strategy, in other words, hiding in your shell, uh, in a multiplayer game. Uh, the strategy sort of entails that you hope other players will attack each other, thus weakening themselves for you to eventually come in for the win. It's generally seen as boring by other players, and a lot of multiplayer games are actually creating systems that avoid turtling by giving incentives to the attacking players. Hey, you call it boring, I call it strategic. It's it's all about <laughs> the end game. If you come out as getting the win, you know that's what matters. Indeed, and and some people are uh, some people will live or die by their ability to commit all of their resources. To defense. Best defense is good offense. All right. Well, let's get into the meat of it. So uh, we're talking this week about uh, a board game. It's called Betrayal of House on the Hill. Uh, it's made by Avalon Games, made in 2010. And it is a board game in which up to six adventurers uh, explore this creepy, scary, haunted mansion uh, with three levels to it, uncovering rooms and tiles and trying to find all of the secrets and every nook and cranny that the house has to offer. Yeah, so the way that the game functions is that everybody picks a character who has four different stats, and those stats are going to increase and decrease throughout the course of the game when effects happen, and they're also used to indicate the number of dice that you roll when confronted with a challenge. So you might hit a might skill check or a might challenge uh, in which you have to check, okay, well, my might is four, so I'll roll four dice, and add up all the numbers, and if that beats the requirement, then something good might happen. If it doesn't, something bad might happen. Throughout the course of the game, you set down tiles. You start with a base lobby, uh, a foyer tile for mm -hmm. the for the mansion as you enter, and you place all of your little uh, all of your little miniatures there. And as they explore, they flip new tiles based on whether they're downstairs mm -hmm. or if they head upstairs, or eventually down to the basement. Yeah, and I think that starting level in the basement called the Basement Landing is there. Uh, it's named that for good reason, because uh, you uh, sometimes <laughs> don't go down to the basement on your own will. No, you'll, you'll, yeah, landing down there is uh, usually a bad. Um, so the, the tiles actually will have various effects on them sometimes, but often they'll have little uh, icons. So there will be an icon for each of the three types of cards there are. And if you see an icon when you land in a room, you'll have to draw one of those corresponding cards there's three types of cards in the game the first is events events are probably the most common of the cards because when they flip something usually bad um, but potentially beneficial happens for instance a ghostly gardener comes and hits you upside the head with a shovel you'll have to make a might roll of four or more in order to dodge the uh, dodge the the spectral gardener and uh, and if you do so, then it actually gives you the benefit of you increasing your uh, your sanity, I believe, because yeah. uh, that's sanity being one of the stats uh, because you've bolstered yourself after this resounding victory. But of course, if you roll lower than a four, well, then you'll take a little bit of damage and have to reduce one of the stats. Yeah, events aren't normally something you really have to worry about. Uh, a lot of times there there can be uh, movement effects to them, or they'll place mm -hmm. you in another room. 
Um, but when you see that event tile, it's almost a sigh of relief because you know what could have happened. Well, and that's true, and we'll get to that uh, that could have happened in just a moment. Now, the best uh, the best card, of course, is the items. The items are amazing. Mm-hmm. There's pretty much no bad items. There's one or two, I think, but it's almost like in Clue, you know, you've got the revolver and the candlestick and those things, but all of them with special effects sort of dictated by the more uh, horror vibe of the game. Um all of the items are pretty beneficial, and, and there's while there's less of them, they definitely make an impact on how you choose to play while exploring this creepy, creepy manor. <laughs> yeah, it gives you a little more confidence walking around the basement when you know you've got that sweet item attached to your hip. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and, of course, there, there's some of them that are a little bit goofier. Uh, not all of them are super useful. Some of them are very useful, and you kind of want to fight over them. Uh, in fact, there's some items that help you steal items from other players. Uh, but the big thing, and probably the most iconic of the cards, is the omen cards. So the way that the omen cards work is when you flip one, you go through the effect, and the effect is actually sometimes good. Yeah, usually sometimes it can be an item that mm-hmm. you hold on to that, while it's very creepy in nature and very evil, um, evil items can be powerful too. So the omen cards then force you to make a haunt roll. And the haunt roll difficulty is uh, equal to the number of haunts that have been revealed so far. So the difficulty is one on your first omen card, right? And then what will happen is players will pick up six dice and roll them. And the dice have have zeros, ones, and twos on them. So if they roll all zeros, well, then they'll have a score of zero and the haunt will begin. And that's pretty important when we're talking about the overall play of the game. Yeah, the uh, the haunt is probably the most pivotal portion of this game where it becomes almost a game within a game at that point. If you uh, acquire enough haunts, uh, or enough omens, that is, and you have to make a haunt roll, uh, and you fail that haunt roll, well, one of your companions now becomes a betrayer. Or it, multiple people in some cases. Oh Yeah, that, that can be the case too. And, and so what that does is it sort of separates the game into two distinct phases. One, there's the adventure phase where you're adventuring the house, trying to like open up spaces, collect items, potentially strengthen your stats or reduce them if you're unlucky. And then when the last omen card flips and the haunt roll is failed, that omen is the culmination of all of the various creepy magical things that have signaled the arrival of the betrayer. And that's the second phase. And so the way the second phase works is entirely different. Basically, what was at first sort of like a non-confrontational exploration game is now a fight to the death between whoever player the scenario indicates is the betrayer and everyone else. Yeah, one thing I like about uh, the betrayer piece of this is that just because you're the one who failed the haunt roll doesn't always make you the betrayer. It really depends on um, you. There's a table that you'll look at in the in one of the manuals where, depending on what omen card you pulled and what room you were in when you pulled it, when you failed that omen check, is what scenario you're playing. There's one of 50 yeah, there's scenarios. Whole, there's, yeah, there's a whole booklet, like uh, Gibby said, with 50 different scenarios. So each time you play, you're going to have... A lot of different things happen based on what item cards you got, what events you got, and what scenario you get. And at a certain point, if you if you hit a scenario and maybe you've played this one before, honestly, just roll a dice and pick a new one. I, I would highly recommend that for people to increase the longevity of the game. But what's so cool is in all the times that I've played, I haven't hit the same scenario twice, which has been super cool. Yeah, me neither. I think I've played this game about ten times uh, since I've owned it personally, and I have yet to hit the same 
uh, scenario, which makes uh, it a really a fresh game and keeps it up to, to date. And uh, it's really fun when you get to kick the uh, betrayer out of the room to go read their scenario. <laughs> You've got one book with your uh, you're now the uh, the adventuring squad together, and then you get to kick the betrayer out of the room. And there's a full fledged scenario with details and what tokens to put on the board and what your new abilities mm-hmm. are and stats. Yeah, and it's so just really well done. Well, the game also at that point becomes more of a gamer's game. You're competing now. Mm-hmm. You've got two two opposing sides who are who are fighting whether for escape or survival or to to stop a terrible ritual. That all the scenarios each create very different gaming experiences. And I mean, the last time we played, um, our friend Dean actually became uh, an invisible hunter who was trying to stalk us through the hallways. Of course, luckily we had the uh, what was it the, the and that, skull and then uh, the, the secret know, book and a secret book that would be able to track his movements, kind of like the Marauders map from Harry Potter. It was pretty cool. Yeah. It's a, it's a very fun game that kind of keeps a new experience every single time. Mm-hmm. So um, I guess kind of the next question is, is how do you know whether this game really is for you? Uh, there's, there's a, we've thrown a lot of details out about uh, the way this game plays, but how do you kind of parse through whether this game would be something that would be, that'd be fun for you to, to, to try out? I, I think, and while normally I, I might go through you know what type of player you are, I, I think it's probably best wrapped in maybe like a, a pros and cons list. Right, so like when you're analyzing board games, there's a lot of things that make it very appealing, and there's a plenty of things that maybe like it has weaknesses. I mean, no game can tickle the same fancy in, in two players, right? Mm-hmm. So I think when going over the pros, one of the best things is just it can be hilarious. The game is so, despite the dark mood, uh, and of course every you know a lot of people always say that you know humor is you know the human reaction to horror, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but even though, although this isn't that scary, guys, it, it's it is can be pretty funny when that one player in the last time we played it was me hits every single terrible event in a row and all their stats go down and then they fall down a chute into the into the basement where everything is awful. It's the opposite of the Lego Movie. Yeah, everything is awful. It's comedic gold sometimes when everything just goes wrong for one player. Um, but on the inverse, um, and sometimes this can happen, uh, which can possibly be a con sometimes is. It's a little bit luck-based in terms of the items where uh, one person can get all of the items and kind of stack them up, and you can kind of have one power player going into the end game, mm-hmm. and it can make it for a little bit of a lopsided finish. Right, and so if every if as you're exploring, I would say that, you know, depending on the length of the game and how long it takes for the haunt to roll, everybody flips probably seven tiles, maybe, maybe a few, maybe five to seven tiles mm-hmm. throughout the course of the game, and, and flipping tiles is good because it gives you the opportunity to get item cards, or if you hit an omen card that... Maybe you successfully fend off the haunt. Now you've got a very powerful omen card, right? And those are the things that will help you in phase two when you're fighting off the betrayer. If you go through the whole game and hit events and lose all of them and your stats get reduced while your buddy over there uh, manages to collect pretty much every single item t- uh, tile that flips, I mean, that there's nothing you do about that. That's bad luck. But <laughs> it does mean that if, that if your buddy becomes the betrayer they keep all those items, guys, and so they, they're pretty stacked. Yeah. So there is occasionally issues of, um, you know, who, who gets the haunt and, and some players having bad enough luck that because things can either be really good as you're exploring or really bad, it can create disparate power levels for Phase 2. A little bit of a balance issue. So that's kind of the, yeah, that, like you said, that's kind of the antithesis to some of the more amusing elements of flipping tiles and seeing what happens. Um, honestly, the, the biggest pro for me is the theme. It drips 
horror, Lovecraftian, you know, uh, you know, werewolf, vampire, like magic, pretty, pretty everything, magic, pretty much every uh, at, you know part of sort of the the horror slash thriller genre, you know, sort of gets tapped into for the different scenarios, and it's really pretty fun. Um, the the cards are very well written. There's a lot of descriptive language in there. Honestly, it's it's this unique blend between a a sort of a storytelling role playing game. It's only, I take that back. It's almost like it's a choose your own adventure combined with a board game where other people get to choose their own adventures too. It's pretty cool. Um, so so just sort of wrap up the pros list. Um, I think the the other and this is probably a, a useful tidbit if you're considering getting this game. Consider what your play group is like. It is very simple and accessible in terms of mechanics. It's so easy. You don't even really need to teach somebody. You can just kind of teach on the fly. It's really simple. Now, there is a little bit of depth when it comes to the, the haunt. Sometimes you open up the, you know, the haunt book and you have to do a little bit of setup uh, and understanding what those wind conditions are. But honestly, this is like extremely teachable. It's like an upgraded party game. Yeah, I mean, when you look at your characters, you've got four stats, which is really not hard... Uh, to kind of understand, uh, and each of them has, when you look on the line on your little character dial for the scale of all of your of your your stats, if you make it down to as effectively zero, where there's a little picture of a skull, you die. It's pretty it's pretty easy to understand from that perspective. Yeah, I mean, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Like, it's clear. And plus, like everybody loves jumping in for a fun game. You know, you've got company over, or you, you know, somebody brought a friend, and you want to play a game, and and but you also want something that you don't have to sit there and explain and let that person's eyes glaze over and become bored. This is easy. Yeah. This is one of those games that it's nice to have in your back pocket to whip out when you've got a company over and you don't know how much of a gamer they are. Um, so when it comes to cons, uh, the other thing to consider is this is this does kind of have adult topics, blood dripping from walls, you know, whispers in your ear. Not probably not. Probably not great for kids. I mean, I'm just going to throw that out there. I'm not going to critique your parenting. But it's not going to feel like horror to you because it's all abstract and you're reading the cards and nothing, no jump scenes or anything like that. But I think to kids it might be a little bit creepy. Um, the other thing to consider is that um, sometimes those scenarios can get a little bit complicated. So, you know, if the, that new player gets the haunt, uh, gets becomes the betrayer, that you, you might have to help them out a little bit. Um, and really the last thing, it's uh, it's about a 45-minute game time for three to four players, a little bit longer for five to six. Just That's just from our personal experience. We might move a little bit faster. And so what I want to mention now is uh, how you can acquire this game. I mean, there's definitely any uh, multiple outlets uh, to find it at. It's not really something that only specific vendors sell yeah, it's it at. It's not niche. It's, it's a well-known game. Yeah, you can find it at most stores, Target, Walmart, Barnes & Noble, Amazon. However, we do recommend... Uh, Amazon is a good place to get this. Mm -hmm. uh, with if you have Prime shipping, there are multiple outlets to find it uh, for Prime shipping on Amazon for thirty-five dollars. I think it was the average price Target was selling it yeah, for thirty-five dollars. Thirty-five seems to be the average. Although if you go to some game stores, uh, I think we looked at Barnes and Noble had it for fifty. I mean, you know, if you really need it now and then, maybe it's worth it to you. But you can find probably better deals uh, elsewhere. Thirty-five seems to be the target range, and if you can find it on sale, you might be able to find it for less. And additionally, on top of the base game, there's also uh, an expansion called Widow's Walk that you can find 
uh, for uh, 20 bucks, I think, uh, also at those same stores. Yeah, and, um, that one might be a little harder to hunt down at, at, uh, at like Target, but I, I guarantee you can find it online. Yeah, and on top of the base game, there is a um, an expansion to, to Betrayal at House on the Hill uh, called The Widow's Walk, where it adds uh, some extra cards uh, to the base game, some extra scenarios, and maybe an extra mechanic or two uh, that really will add some extra flavor to it. Uh, it's been an updated version of it, as well as a legacy system called Betrayal Legacy mm-hmm. um, that uh, sounds like stats carry over if between games you can play multiple runs at a time. Yeah, I mean, Legacy, if, at least when it comes to other games, and I, I'll, I mean, I have not personally played Betrayal Legacy, so I'm not exactly sure how it works, but Legacy games tend to enable you to have multiple playthroughs where the status between games carries over and the things that happen in one game affect what happens in the next game. Uh, so they have it for several other very successful board games. It's become a sort of a niche but extremely popular interest amongst the gaming board gaming community. Yeah, and to round up the episode, we're going to do our one-minute mentions where it's just something that uh, we were either thinking about recently or kind of crossed our minds uh, from our own experiences and our own lives uh, while we were prepping for this episode, kind of on the topic uh, of Betrayal at House on the Hill. So, uh, Ian, do you want to cut yours first? Yeah, so the thing I wanted to mention I, as I was trying to – I had a hard time thinking of something. I like to tie it into our topic, so I was thinking of something that sort of worked with House on the Hill. Um, and I thought about the first H.P. Uh, Lovecraft short story that I ever read. I'm slowly, slowly, slowly making my way through Lovecraft's sort of shorter works, and eventually I suppose I'll, I'll read some of the later stuff. Uh, the music of Eric Zahn was what a lot of uh, sites directed me towards for my first foray into this uh, cosmic horror that Lovecraft so lovingly put together. Um, it's basic. It's, it's very short and it kind of gives you just a little bit of a hint of what is explored in some of Lovecraft's other works. The basic concept is a university student who finds himself on a mysterious uh, avenue in Paris, and there is a bizarre musician living above him whose entrancing viola music holds back the darkness that is outside his window. Very good, very good. All right, so one thing uh, that I really enjoy doing is kind of a hobby of mine, which you some might consider part of the gaming community or the nerd community, some may, may not, um, is escape rooms. I really enjoy doing escape rooms, and there's one locally that I've done by a company called Escape to Win um, that I really thought about during this episode. Uh, the, the theme of the escape room was Ghostly Encounter, and uh, to not reveal anything about the room for their sake, I'll, I'll avoid details, but uh, it was very thematic in, in terms of uh, kind of parsing through a scary... Uh, environment um, and halfway through the escape room uh, you really seems to be a big shift in your objective uh, which is really That's fun kind of unique for escape rooms too I feel like yeah it is it was it was a very well done very thought out um, had some really cool tricks and clues and it was very neat uh, and when you read the basic uh, premise of the escape room you don't get that feel that this is going to be what you're you're doing at the end of it so it was an awesome escape room and, and that uh, was that was where again because i don't think I've, i don't think i've been there it's at a place called escape to win in virginia beach oh uh, virginia okay, beach cool. virginia that's neat yes yeah no gibby is my uh, go-to escape room buddy he's really good at him well thank you thank you all right, that about wraps it up for this episode of Nerdgate. Uh, be sure to follow us on Podbean or iTunes. You can find our podcast there, and we are in the works of uh, getting on Google Play as well. Uh, individually, you can follow us uh, on Twitter, myself at uh, Gibbles in Bits. Mm-hmm. 
on Ian, if you want to go ahead and... Yeah, I'm, um, I'm Dead Broke Nerd across all platforms. I have a Twitch stream where I play a competitive card game. I'm also on Instagram, Twitter, and I have a website, a blog, with deadbronerd.com. All right, we'll see you next time. Nerdgate out.